You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We'll continue our studies in the Gospel of John. We will get close, Lord willing, today to finishing chapter 15, but not quite there just yet. We're going to, Lord willing, finish down through verse 25. Um, At this point, I'll go ahead and ask you if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we'll read together verses 22 through 25. And then pray before we begin working through this. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, bow with me once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for this time. God, I thank You for Your Word and the testimony of it. Oh, Father, we are unable to understand Your Word without You showing it to us. Oh, God, I'm unable to even for a moment teach or declare to anyone else the truth of Your Word without Your empowering hand and enlightening hand Showing us what these things mean. Oh, Father, I pray that you would be gracious during this time. I pray that you would woo our hearts by the glories contained in this text. That we who know you would be reminded of your gracious character. And those who are yet outside of you and do not know your son. Oh, God, I pray that you would erupt into this place in such a way that they see you as they never have before. Father, as always, I do pray that you would guard me from error and misspeaking, that everything uttered would be to your glory and praise and according to truth, and that you would shut my mouth if I would misspeak. Oh, God, we want to know you. We want to know the presence of our God and to know what it means to have your face shining upon us. Father, I pray we might see your glory in the face of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this particular message is Hated Without a Cause. Hated Without a Cause. You'll find that at the end of our thoughts in verse 25. And I hope to demonstrate to you throughout this text what that means. Hated Without a Cause. And not only what it meant then, but how that applies to us today. This is a relevant theme, as much relevant today This is as relevant in the heart and mind of any unbeliever and especially those who have grown up in a religious context hearing truth. This is relevant to any who reject Christ today as it ever has been. Hated without a cause. Uh, Just a brief introduction. In our previous message, we saw Jesus speaking to the disciples and really describing to them this hatred of the world. Warning them, the world's going to hate you. And when the world hates you, 
Don't be surprised it hated me first. And we saw that really what's underneath the world's hatred of Jesus, hatred of God, is their own autonomy, their own need to be God, their own need to be king and have their own kingdom. And so whenever the world sees a Christian who has a different king than they do, who lives in a different kingdom than they do, there's a clash. And so the world hates Christians. In addition to that, we saw that the unbelieving world is going to hate Christians because Christians are not silent. Christians are sent as messengers. We have a message of a king. Not only do we live under the authority of the king, we go proclaiming the message of the king to those who are not submitted to him, which again produces this hate-filled response. All in all, though, we saw that the real cause for the hatred is because men and women will not have Jesus Christ to rule over them. They'll not have anyone to tell them what to do or how to live. I believe that was perfectly summarized. And the rulers of the earth mentioned in Psalm 2, what do they say? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. People hate God because they do not want to be told how they can and cannot live. Now, to summarize... That last section we were looking at, what it showed us was a clear explanation for rebellion and hatred from man's perspective. Do you follow me? Last week we're seeing, okay, in man's mind, why is he rebelling against God and hating Christianity? Why? Well, because he's a, a God in his own mind and he wants what he wants. That's the reason why he rejects Christianity. And so from the lost man's point of view, God is nothing more than an evil tyrant trying to control him. And Christians who go to them telling them about this God, well, they're probably inclined to view the Christian with the message of Christianity as no better than an IRS agent who's come to collect money from them. Someone who's come to challenge their authority, their desires, and what they want. Now, I want to ask you, this picture of God as a tyrant, as God as an evil, hard, harsh taskmaster, is that an accurate picture of reality? What is God's perspective on these things? We've seen man's perspective on why he hates God and the reasons for it. What's God's estimation of man? We ought to care more about what God thinks than what you or I think. If at any time you find your point of view is contrasted with or opposed to God's point of view, did you know that that means your point of view is wrong? If God says something and you think something different, he's not the one that's wrong. We are. And we've got to be prepared to admit, acknowledge that, because you see, God, he sees all. He knows all. Theologically, we refer to this as his omniscience. God knows everything all the time, exhaustively, while you and I see and know little to nothing. God, his perspective or his point of view is limitless. And ours is limited and fractured. And so our verses today, I believe, are a proclamation to us of God's heart in the matter. God speaks to us first, we saw from man's point of view, why he hates God. It's his own autonomy. It's his own, his own understanding of his own will and desires and what he wants. And here we have God telling us from his perspective of his good purposes, of his mercy, and we're going to see that the mercy of God is so evidently displayed that the rebellion of men has no excuse before him. 
So my challenge is that you would hear the word of the Lord to you today in this text. Listen to what God is saying to you and come to see that there is no legitimate cause for hating or rejecting him. With that, we begin looking at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So as we work through this, be be realizing this, we're answering the question from God's point of view, why it is that people reject him. Now, listen to this. The first thing, if I had not come and spoken to them, the first thing you see is this. God has come to us in gracious condescension. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, in other words, he has come and spoken to them. This is Jesus speaking of his coming and speaking to them. Now, let me ask you this. Was God in any way obligated to come and speak to them? The word condescend, it may have a negative connotation in our society today, but condescend simply means to come down. It means that Jesus is so far above us as the second person in the Trinity for him to engage with us. He can't engage with us from up here because we're so far beneath him because of our not just our sin, but the fact that we're not God and his holiness means there's a chasm here. So for him for him to speak to us, he must come down to engage. There's a condescension that takes place. That's the first thing we see that he came and spoke to them. I'm asking Did he have to? Would Jesus have been wrong if he had not come and spoken to them? He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Jesus did not have to come and speak to them. Remember the picture we saw last week. Here's man seeking his own desires. He's his own God. He's going to do what he wants. And he's in rebellion to God. The testimony all the way through this Bible is men and women are in rebellion to God. Now ask yourself this. If you were to see this reality, there's this great and devastating war going on and you're one of the soldiers in this war. Would you ever expect for the other king, the king on the other side of the line to come to you to speak to you as an individual, as personal? Does that make any sense to you in some great war? Do you expect the the king or president of that other nation to come talk to you? An insignificant nobody in this war. And yet Jesus says he came and spoke to them. Maybe this will help to illustrate this point. Imagine that if someone you had never done anything wrong to had slaughtered your entire family. Would you be compelled to be the one to initiate reconciliation? Would you be the one to come to the one who's done nothing but evil against you without a cause? Would you be the one to pursue reconciliation? The answer is, if we're honest, no. I'll be the one to pursue litigation. I'm the one who's going to try to get them thrown in jail or killed if I don't kill them myself. That's our attitude. We're seeing in Jesus' condescension, He's come to us who are His enemies and rebels. And He is the one initiating this. This is significant in light of why it is that men rebel against God, rebel against Christ, why they hate Him without a cause. Consider this from Isaiah 1.18. What does God say to a rebellious people? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Think of this. We who are sinners, God's coming to us 
Imagine this, the condescension. God saying to us who deserve nothing but judgment, come reason with me. Come listen. Come think about this. I am prepared to make you clean. Though you're a rebel, you're not just somebody who's done a few bad things. You're a rebel to my will. And I'm willing to come to you and reason with you and make an appeal to you that you might be forgiven. This is condescension. This is what Jesus manifests in the fact that He's come and spoken. The very fact, if Jesus never uttered a single word, His very coming into the world is a declaration of mercy. I ask this, why on earth would the Son of God leave the courts of heaven? Why would He take upon Himself a human flesh? Why would He go through this suffering and humiliation? Why would He make Himself for a little while lower than the angels? Why do all of this and endure this hard life on the earth? You see, if, if, if the answer is anything less than He's one who's come to give mercy, I suggest to you that it's blasphemy. Anything less than proclaiming God's mercy and not only proclaiming it, but accomplishing that mercy and salvation is blasphemy. Why do I say that? Jesus came. We see He's come. You realize if He only came to destroy, He did not have to leave the courts of heaven to do that. He could have destroyed His enemies with a single word or single thought from the throne room of God. He did not have to come in order to destroy us. Neither did He have to come to communicate to us. The entirety of the Old Testament shows us prophets God raises up and sends to speak to us. Jesus did not have to come to destroy us. He did not even have to come as a prophet to tell us something. But He did have to come in order to do what He came to do. Jesus' very coming is an evidence of the nature of what He's come to do. Jesus has come to reveal God to us in a way that had never been done before. And Jesus has come as God in the flesh to accomplish something that God alone could do. I charge to us that Jesus, His coming and speaking are a clear evidence of His mercy toward us. Now I ask, in light of these things, do you all, do you see the coming and speaking of Christ to you here, even today, do you see this as mercy? You see, Jesus, who, who could have not engaged with you at all, has not allowed you to continue on to hell in judgment without at least gathering here under the sound of His voice, not my voice, His voice, once again, before you've fallen entirely away. Now, if you were to fall over, any one of you, contact with everyone. If any one of you were to fall over dead in your seat now and go on to face the judgment of God, the words of Jesus, the mercy of Christ would be a testimony against your unbelief. The fact that you're not fallen over yet is mercy from Jesus that you might hear from Him yet again. This is what we see in His coming. If I had not come and spoken to them now, I'm arguing that the nature of His coming is mercy and goodness. And before He ever uttered a single word, His grace was apparent. It was indicating His purpose to redeem. Suppose this, when Jesus first comes to the world, why is it that He doesn't immediately begin dishing out wrath on everyone within sight? Why not? 
Why is it? How is it that God incarnate could, could look upon a wicked and twisted world without destroying it? You see, the grace and mercy of Christ are demonstrated in the fact that he's come and the fact that he has not. He did not come destroying tells us he came for another reason. And then then his grace and mercy are further demonstrated in that he did speak. Not only has he come, but he has spoken. He didn't leave it to the twisted imaginations of men to guess why he came. Jesus didn't leave it to you and I to figure out, well, okay, he's come. It must be for a good reason. It must be for my good. But he actually did speak to us. He did say some things. And he's given us a clear indication through what he said as to why he came. Now, for our purposes today, we could look throughout the New Testament, but I want to limit our examination here to the Gospel of John. That's what we're studying. These things should be familiar to you. And I want to ask the question, when Jesus says that he has come and spoken to them, what things did he say to them? What things has he said to you? And everything we're going to look at is something that if you're a part of this church with any regularity, you've heard these things. So it's the same as saying he has spoken these things to you. And if you're one who's not been a part of this church, he's going to speak them to you today. So be listening. This is what Jesus words reveal about the purpose of his coming. This is God's heart. This is God's perspective on the matter. Man's perspective is God's my enemy and I hate him. What's God's perspective? What's revealed in the words of Jesus Christ? John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Here's the message of God to the world. Here's the message of God to everyone under the sound of His voice right now even. I sent My Son to save the world, not condemn it. That's not why He came. Jesus' coming was not to condemn the world. Not the first time. He came to save it. This proclamation ought to have told these people what God's heart towards them was that was being expressed. What is it that they failed to understand? What did, what did they fail to hear? If you're one who even now has never come to know Christ, what have you failed to come to understand? What have you failed to come to see about God? Is God just one who's threatening destruction against you? Or does He have another purpose for engaging with you? John 4, verses 13 and 14, Jesus to the Samaritan woman says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So get this. They hated me without a cause. That's what we're trying to explain. Now reason this with me. Why is it that Jesus comes saying God sent his son to save the world, not condemn it. God sent his son that they may have eternal life. Now, why is that a message to be rejected? Why? And he, why would a person reject and hate that message? What's the explanation? I'm hoping to show you the explanation for man's rebellion to God and rejection of Jesus can never be laid at God's feet as though it were his fault. As though God's demonstration of his character in his son could be said to be anything less than mercy. 
If you look at Jesus and you don't see mercy, you're not seeing him rightly. It's a twisted and perverted idea of who you think that he is. He goes on in John 5, verse 24, and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Again, I ask, why hate and reject someone who tells you this? If you believe my word and you believe the one who sent me, you're not going to be judged. You're going to have eternal life. You're going to have eternal bliss and joy. How do you hear that and respond with away with him? I don't want to hear what he's saying. You see, there's a disconnect in their response to Jesus and what he actually came to do. If you're one who walks out of here rejecting Jesus, you're not hearing why he came. You have not entered into what he's saying to you. There is judgment. There is wrath. But that's not the message he's proclaiming to you yet. While it is day. What has he said to you? What has he said to us? Look forward. John chapter 6, verse 35. The same theme continues. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, even the illustrations that Jesus chooses to describe himself show his evident goodness. Just Recently, immediately before this, he's fed all these people. He's sustained them physically. He's met their need of hunger. And then he looks at them and says, that need that you have in your stomach is like unto the need in your soul. And I'm the only one who can meet that too. This is a proclamation of mercy. There's a drawing effect that should be happening here. Why aren't men drawn to that? Why do you reject this? How can you reject this? John 6 and verse 40, Jesus says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. I'll give you eternal life. I'll raise you up. How can you reject this? What is being evidenced in the words Jesus spoke? I know He said a lot more than what I'm highlighting here. But I'm saying, how can you hear these words? Notice several of these are couched in the context of the I am statements. In other words, when Jesus says I am, the ego a me, he's saying this is who God is. And when you notice, if you'll notice these expressions of who God is, the I am are referring to God's desire to be merciful to people, to feed people, to give them life, to give them light, to save them. God's character is on display in these things. John 8 and chapter chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Once again, do you see the pattern? Do you see the theme? Men are in darkness. They can't see. Jesus says, I've come as a light. If you follow me, you're going to be able to see. You're not going to be banging into stuff all the time. You're going to be able to see. You're going to avoid The falls, the pitfalls and traps of the devil. You need light or you're going to fall in a pit. He says, I've come as light. Light for your soul. How do you reject this Savior? John 10 and verse 9, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
This is who He is. There's a salvation through Him as the door. Imagine looking at Jesus and He's saying, I'm the door. And you're saying, I don't want the salvation that you give. I don't want the good pasture you're telling me about. Everything He says is telling you He's come. Not to be served, but to serve. That's the point in these things. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Is there any greater hope that you could possibly have that Jesus says, if you're believing in me, even if you die, even death's not the end for you. There is life on the other side of death, eternal life. He is the resurrection and the life for John 12, verse 47. Jesus says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, now listen, I do not judge him. For I did not come to, the, to judge the world, but to save the world. You see this? How is it that you hear Jesus saying, I have not come to judge the world, but to save it. And men say, crucify away with him. This is mercy on display. There's no charge that can be laid against the character of the son of God. What? Is the character of God being demonstrated in these things? These very public proclamations Jesus made is not the constant theme in all of this. Mercy, mercy, a repeated appeal for the good of those who are hearing. If you come to him, there is always a good result, always a good result. How is it that anyone could hear these glorious Life-giving, merciful words and be driven to hatred and rejection. And the question comes to you, whether you're a believing person or not, how do you respond to Jesus today? Has not your heart as a Christian been wooed to be reminded He's come and He didn't just say it once or twice or three times, but He was constantly repeating why He came to give mercy for goodness, for salvation, for life, for redemption, all of these things. This is his purpose in coming. And then we get to the next part of our verse. That's God's attitude. That's God's evaluation of what's been happening. They're hating him as their enemy. God says, my son has come revealing me to be a merciful and compassionate God. That's what he's come to tell you. The prophets of old said true things about God as they're carried by the spirit. But in these last days, He's spoken by His Son. And what does His Son come to say to you? His, come, his Son has come to say, My Father is a God of mercy, of compassion. He's willing to forgive you and save you. Oh, there are some conditions. And He Himself went on to meet those conditions. But He's a God of mercy. And then we read in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Now, I've suggested to more than one person over this last week, this is a dangerous, dangerous text, isn't it? How easy would it be to misunderstand these words? They would not have been guilty of sin. Is Jesus saying when he says not guilty of sin, is he saying that if he had not come and shared the gospel with them, that they would be righteous, that they would not go to hell when they died, that they would escape judgment? If only Jesus had never said anything to them, then they would all be saved. Is that what he's saying? You know, there are people that actually believe that people in other parts of the world that have never heard the gospel, if they die, they automatically go to heaven. 
If that's true, mission organizations are the most evil and heinous things on the planet. Why would you go and give them an opportunity to go to hell? If they're going to be saved anyway, it's not what Jesus is saying. And we know that from both the context and several other scriptures we'll consider together. Jesus, in light of this context, here's what he's saying to them. He's not saying that they would not be guilty of any sin. They were certainly guilty of any self-righteousness that they had, any lies that they told, any coveting that they had done, any lusting or greed or any other sin that they've committed. Jesus is specifically addressing their sin of hating and rejecting Him. That's the thing He's highlighting. He's saying if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of their rejection of Me. He's saying My words to them so evidently show the goodness of God, they have no excuse for rejecting them. There's no reason for rejecting them. No valid reason for rejecting Him. That's what He's saying. You see... In other words, the light, the light, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, the light of his coming and the light of his words prevented them from pretending that they loved God when they did. You see that in the next verse we'll consider in a moment. The next verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. Do you see the point in this? Here are religious people who say we really do love God. And Jesus is saying, you hate me. You reject me. You have no reason or no excuse for rejecting me. They say, oh, we really love God. Jesus says, no, you don't. No, you don't. My words and my coming and my life demonstrate you don't really love God. If you did, you would have loved me. You would have received me. You see, Jesus is saying that his coming and speaking to them is like this great light that's being shined upon them, revealing what's actually true of them. You see, before Jesus came and spoke to them, they could have presented themselves to others as ones who really did love God. Jesus' words here, Jesus' words that he spoke to them removed the veil that they had, which masked their hatred of God with religious activity. The moment Jesus comes and starts saying these things, it exposes who and what they really are. Look with me for a moment at John chapter 3. Jesus says they would not have been guilty of sin. Well, let's consider that. Look with me at John chapter 3. What exactly is he saying here? John chapter 3, begin reading in verse 18 with me. I already read for you verses 16 and 17 all ago. That's the, the, this message of mercy and of that's the proclamation. I could even argue that is the light that's shining here in verses 18 through 21. The light of the salvation he came proclaiming. That's the light that's being shed on these people. You get to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you catch that? So in other words, these folks Jesus is talking about in John 15, the ones who would not have been guilty of sin, well, John 3 tells us they were condemned already. Before the light ever shined on them, they were condemned. They were condemned by their rebellion to God before the light ever shone upon them. But then we go on and he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Do you see the point? Do you catch the argument here? What he's saying? Those who hate the light were condemned already. And the light just simply reveals that. It reveals that they already hated God. Their, their professions of faith, their activity in the temple, their service unto God, just like Saul of Tarsus, chasing down, trying to put Christians to death, breathing out threats and slaughter. That light shines throughout of heaven. All of a sudden, the sin's exposed and revealed. Saul had no more excuse for his sin of persecuting Christ after that Damascus road, did he? He had no more excuse. He would have given an account for his sin before that happened. But the moment the light shined out of heaven upon him, the Scripture is telling you that if you're one who is lost, one who remains in a lost condition, you're going to run away from the light. You're going to avoid the light because it exposes your sin and guilt. That's what he's saying. And the nature, here is what it is. The nature and message of his words leave them without an excuse for remaining separated from God. You see, there's the last part of this. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Last part of John 15, 22. They have no excuse for their sin. There is no legitimate reason for rejecting Jesus Christ. None whatsoever. You cannot make any argument to justify rejecting Jesus Christ. And it's not as if these people had a legitimate excuse for hating God before Jesus spoke to them. But the merciful character of His coming and the gracious content of the words Jesus has been speaking to them, they utterly destroy any excuse they thought they had. Any excuse they thought they might have had for hating Him. Completely destroyed. And that's the aim. That's what happens when God proclaims His Word to people. Without fail, Paul says much the same in Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here's my question for you. Is the rapist, is the child molester, is the murderer, are these people, are they excused from their sin if they say, no one ever told me that was wrong? The answer is no, they're not. And in Romans 3, the argument's not, well, until the law came, people really weren't accountable. The point is their mouth was stopped. Their excuses are taken away as the law. The perfect, unobjectionable law of God is applied. And they have no more excuse. That's what Jesus is saying. They don't have an excuse for their sin. It's been taken away by the truth of my words and the mercy of God and God's willingness to save all who come to Him. That's been repeated over and over again. They have no excuse for going on in their hatred of God. Now, no one could ever say that Jesus' words were unkind or unfair. Not, not sincerely with the right understanding of those words. No one can say that Jesus was ever dishonest. Or that He was ever misleading in what He had to say. No one can say that Jesus was unclear or left room for doubt. There's no doubting the expressions that we've heard from Him. No one who has heard the words of Jesus Christ can say that salvation has not been offered to them by Him. The offer has gone forth even again today. If you believe in Jesus, there will be eternal life for you without question. That offer goes forth yet again. No one can say who's heard that that He has not genuinely extended that to them. 
And no one can even say that his words condemned them. Jesus' words have never condemned you. Not in a final sense. They might have convicted you. They might have made you feel sinful and rotten to the core. And if they did, that's a pretty good indication. If his words have convicted you. But his words didn't condemn you. He himself said that he did not come to condemn the first time, but that you were already condemned and already without excuse. And though his words do not come against you as a judge now, there is a day coming when his very words are going to judge you and testify against you. We saw this as well back from John 12. Verse 47 was what we read earlier where Jesus says he hasn't come to judge. He's not judging you. He's come to save Verse 48 says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words, they have a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. You see, Jesus' words, they leave us without an excuse or a covering for our sin. And if we have no excuse before God for our sin, what is the explanation for the sin of hating and rejecting Christ? Here's my question. There is no legitimate excuse From God's perspective, as we're seeing today, there is no justified reason for rejecting Jesus. Not a single solitary one. What is the reason then? Verse 23 says, Whoever hates me hates my father also. The clear answer for any rejection of Jesus is a hatred for the father. You think about it this way. It is unthinkable to imagine that the love of that you, that you have a real love for God the Father and that you do not love His Son. The nature of their union is such that if you love one, you must love the other. You can't love the Father and not the Son. Now, if anyone says that they love God or even that they love the Bible, which all of these religious people that he's talking about in this context, they all would have said, we love God and we love the Scriptures. Every one of them would have said that. And yet, and yet, They're not compelled by the words of Christ to love and serve Him. You know what that tells us? They're liars. They don't really love God. You can't say, I love God and not love His Son. You can't do it. And if you say, I love God, but I don't love His Son, then it's likely, more than likely actually, you made a false God out of your own imagination. Jesus is the one who clearly reveals the Father to us. That's the explanation. We press on to verse 24. He says, if I, had, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Here's that same expression, would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. And so we can basically take all of the explanation that I was giving to you. What does it mean that they are not guilty of sin according to his words that he spoke? It means that his words are evident There's an evidence about his words that cannot be argued or denied. There's no legitimate reason for rejecting him because of his words. And now even more, there's no legitimate reason for rejecting him because of his works, because of his signs and the miracles that he performed. Now, you would think that his coming and his word would be enough, right? You would think the fact that he came and spoke would be enough To eliminate any excuse that a man might make for rejecting Jesus. And the truth is, if Jesus had never come, you're still not going to have an excuse before God. The fact that he has come and that he has spoken and that he has done things. That just amplifies the fact that you have no excuse. 
that you're hearing these things. Now, what we're being told in this verse is that not only has the light of creation demonstrated the sin of man, not only has the light of Christ's coming and speaking made plain the guilt of every person, but the works Jesus did are also seen to stop the mouth of any person, any person who would try to excuse their sin. If you tell me I cannot believe Jesus or I reject Him, these works that He did are meant to close your mouth and show you there is no reason not to come to Him. No reason to ever question Him. How can anyone, even for a moment, maintain innocence in light of all that Jesus Christ did? And that raises a good question. What did Jesus do? Is it any wonder, here we're seeing from Jesus, here's what's set forth. Two primary things. The words Jesus spoke and what Jesus did. Now isn't it interesting the way that um, Luke talks about both his gospel and the book of Acts. He starts in Acts and says, The former treaties I made, O excellent Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And you can't have one without the other. There are those who say, we want to look at all Jesus did and we want to see Him as our example and we want to see His love, but ignore what He said. And then there are others who say, well, look what He said over here. Let's focus on His teaching. Uh, we're not so interested in what He actually accomplished. It's both His words and what He actually accomplished and did. So we ask, what is it that Jesus accomplished? Well, similarly, as we walk through John, just briefly consider with me some of the things he's done in John's gospel, things we've heard about. He's turned water into wine. You say, what does that have to do with expressing God's mercy to people? Well, do you recall the story they'd run out of wine at this wedding and the shame that was going to be had upon the family hosting at this wedding event and Jesus mercifully giving this wine, not only just helping them, but even foreshadowing what He's come to do, the wine, the blood that He's come to give. Jesus, but in mercy, miraculously turning water into wine. And this is the response. This is what happened to His disciples. This is what's meant to happen as the signs of Jesus go forth. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed Him. His disciples, they saw, here's an evidence of the power and mercy of God in Christ. That's what His works accomplished. Or we look forward to John 2.15. And making a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now somebody might say, well, Jesus in John 15, He's talking about the works that no one else did. Is driving... Is, Cleansing the temple, is that a supernatural work, do you suppose? Oh, you talk about one man by himself driving out thousands and thousands of people and animals in this context. The strength of voice required, the energy, the power of God on display. Oh yeah, it was. But here's what it demonstrates to us. Why did he do that? Why did he run them out? He's overwhelmed by two things, the text tells us. Two things. One, zeal for his father's house consumed him. He was so enraptured with a love for his father that he would not tolerate that stuff in there. And the second, a love for people. People that were being taken advantage of. The money changers charging ridiculously high prices to, get to sell these sacrifices in the temple. Mercy and compassion and a love for his father. That's what compelled him in these things. 
Jesus demonstrated his power and mercy. I would love to go through and read all of these things, but I won't suffer you to do that. Just listen to them. Go and read them again and again and again. Jesus demonstrates his power and his mercy when he healed the official son in John 4. Here's God's character displayed. You think God's not interested in healing people? He even charges the man in John 4. You're not believing. Unless you see a sign, you won't believe. And the man says, I believe. Help me. Help me. Jesus is willing to be merciful to His people. Fast forward, John tells us that Jesus gave rest. He gave true rest to a weary man on the Sabbath. I word it that way very intentionally. There's a man who's crippled, paralyzed in John 5. Jesus heals him, gives him rest. That's ironic, isn't it? Imagine the anguish and the the weariness that comes from being constantly dependent on everybody else with no hope of walking. Jesus demonstrates the mercy of God on the Sabbath by giving this man a sense of rest by restoring his body. Jesus fed more than 5,000 hungry people in John 6. He pours life and sight into a blind man in John 9. I ask, is there any charge to be laid against Jesus in a lot of these things? What can you say about Jesus? What, what legitimate cause is there to hate Him in light of these things? Can you find even one thing about Jesus Christ that is worthy of your rejection? Even one thing. Not only did His coming indicate His purpose in being merciful, not only does His words repeatedly offer grace and redemption, but His very actions demonstrate the heart of God. We can't look at Jesus and accuse Him of not being good or merciful or ready to receive those who come to Him. Even you see demonstrated in John the Baptist, who, according to Jesus, there's no one greater that's been born of a woman than John the Baptist. None. John the greatest, we might say. John has his doubts. What does Jesus tell him back in Matthew 11? Think of this. This is explaining. John the Baptist asked, are you the one we ought to be looking for or not? Now think of this. What John's essentially asking is, are you Messiah? Are you the one sent from God? Are you the Son of God or not? That's what John's asking him. Jesus' response is so telling. John's in prison thinking, well, okay, my mighty military leader, Jesus. John had some wrong ideas along the way too, believe it or not. This mighty military leader is going to come and overcome these Romans and help me out of jail probably. Well, Jesus tells him this. Matthew 11. It says, When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Here's my question. Is Jesus worthy of submitting to? Is He one you should receive and and believe? Or is He one to reject? John could have very easily said, should we accept you or reject you? Are you the one we're to be looking for? Or do we look for somebody else? Jesus answered them. Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The one who doesn't hate me. They hated me without a cause. Jesus tells John, John says, when are you going to stop piddling around helping people who are suffering and do the big thing like get rid of Rome? 
It's as though Jesus is saying, you don't realize this is the purpose in me coming is to be merciful to those who are hurting and needed. The mercy of God displayed in Christ. Are you going to be offended by Jesus who comes offering mercy to those who don't deserve it? Those who need help, those who are in the gutter, those who are blind and lame, poor, miserable, weak. That's the answer. You see, there is no just cause for being offended by him, as he puts it. So my question again, why then do people go on hating him? Why are they offended by this gracious Savior? Here's what we read. Verse 25, our last verse for today in this text. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Those who reject Jesus Christ do so firstly as a fulfillment of Scripture. You realize that? This is why people reject Jesus. The Scripture said they would. But the word that is written in their law, there's got to be a fulfillment of the Scripture. They hated me without a cause. That's the first reason. The second reason They do so because of the hardness of their heart. They reject Jesus because they're hard-hearted people who do not want Him to rule over them. As we saw last week, they do so because they want to be in control. They want their will and purpose to prevail. But there's another reason that people reject Him. A practical explanation that God gives us as to why people reject Jesus. And it's found... In the reference that Jesus has made here. This is a reference from Psalm 35. Listen to this. Psalm 35 and 19. Why do people hate Jesus without a cause? Listen to this. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. You hear that? Wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without a cause. You hear what he's saying? Let not those... Rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Now, the expression wrongfully my foes is helpful. In one sense, we understand this to mean that they're wrong for opposing him. Of course, they're wrong for opposing him. He's the king. They're wrong for opposing him. But there's something else to this. Pay pay attention to this. In light of what Jesus has been telling us in John 15... This Psalm 35, 19, those who wrongfully are his foes. In a lot of that, it seems appropriate to understand this this way. To those who see me as their enemy who should not. Do you follow the argument here? Everything about Jesus' life and ministry is declaring to those that he's ministering to mercy and deliverance and salvation. And they reject him as though he's their enemy. He's saying, I'm not your enemy. Now I'm coming back to judge one day. We saw that there is a coming again where every mouth will be permanently silenced before God. Everyone who rejected him will be calling on the mountains and the rocks and hills to fall on us and hide us from the wrath of this same lamb. But as Jesus is before you now, you hear one who is your enemy and he's saying, I've come, though you were my enemy. I've come to save your soul. I've come to do and your error. The reason they reject him is because they wrongfully view him as a foe. They think he's come against them. Not yet. Not yet. He will one day. But as of today, he says to you, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Realize he's come to save this time. Not to condemn. That's the answer. That's why they hate him without a cause. If you listen to what he said, if you see what he did, 
There's no cause for hating or rejecting Him. Not a single one. The trouble is, people are always prepared to look to that second time. And they're sitting there thinking, well, I'm going to be angry with Him the second time when He comes. When He judges me for not listening to Him now, that's what I'm going to be upset about. And they fail to see the grace of God that's set before them today. Today. No one has any just cause for hating Jesus Christ. If they knew what He had come to do, if they understood the hope and redemption that He's brought, if they realized His unending goodness and mercy, they would not see Him as their enemy, but as their Savior. Ultimately, I say this to you, people reject Jesus Christ because they're ignorant of Him. They don't know who He is. They don't know why He's come. And if you die in that state of rejection, you will never know His saving and redeeming power. You will not. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. But yet today, this very day, His words to you once again. And you could be one of those people who say to me, well, it's not right or fair for God to judge people who've never heard the Gospel. Listen, friend, you have heard it. You have, Jesus says, if you want to say to me, I think that text is saying, if you haven't heard Jesus' words, you're not guilty of sin. That's not true of you. You have heard His words. So whatever you think He means by that, let me press to you this, that you're in the same position as those He's describing, that you hate Him without a cause if you're not saved. And He has come to you in His Word and in the proclamation of it and all that He's accomplished. And I need to tell you this. We read of miracles that He did, but we never got to the big thing. We never got to the greatest work that He did. What is it? What's the greatest work that tells you that He loves you as a friend and not an enemy? God has demonstrated His love and that while we were enemies, He died for us. The cross demonstrates the love of God. What has He accomplished? What does the cross tell you about His coming? How can you look at a Savior dying for your sin and say, I hate you. Any proclamation of hatred is without a just cause. There is no just cause for this rejection. The final proof of the loving character of Christ is seen in His own cross. And the charge that comes to you is how shall you escape if you neglect such a great salvation? How will you escape? There is one who is merciful here today. One who says to you, come unto me and be saved. Do you see how insane it is to look at him as an enemy still yet? To push him away or to the side and say, I don't want you, Jesus. It's insanity. And yet those of us who have come to see Him in that way, that's why we rejoice to sing songs like we did. That's why when even Satan comes as the accuser and tempts me to despair, that I'm reminded of the guilt within by his lying words. And yet I say, I really am guilty. And upward I look and see my Savior there who made an end to all my sins. As Christians, we're reminded of our sin and it says, yes, but there is mercy. Yes, there is love. And I see Him who died for me there. There is a glorious wonder to be had. You see, the unbeliever, is in, their insanity is seen in their rejection of the love of God in Christ. Don't let that be true of you. Don't face Him on that second day, that last day, that day that is coming. Call upon Him today and you'll be saved. And as a Christian, rejoice in this. You know what this means. If people hate you for your stand for Christ, 
we ought to be people who are not giving them a just cause for hating us. They hated Him without a cause. I'm afraid too often Christians are hated with a cause. That our attitude and character don't reflect well on this message and on this Savior. As we imitate Him and share truth with this community and the world, let our characters, let us strive to imitate Him in the way that we engage with people so that when people look at us, they say, well... They can't say, well, they've got a message of mercy, but they're not very merciful themselves. They're telling me to believe in grace, but they don't believe. They're not very gracious. That's a poor testimony. Let us be those who demonstrate the fact that we've come to know mercy and grace by being that to others. I pray this has found you well and encouraged you. And if you have not come to this Savior yet, He'd give you no rest until you do. Daddy, you'll bow with me. We'll close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord our God, I thank You for Your mercy and goodness. I praise You for all that You've shown us in Your Son. That we can see Him in His glory and power and goodness. Oh Father, continue to bring these truths to bear upon our hearts. Remind us again and again and again of Your love and Your mercy. Let us not forget them. Oh, Father, make your face to shine upon us. In Jesus' name.